Open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 15. Jeremiah 15. Our focus this morning will be on 15, 1 through 21. We'll be reading 14, verse 19 through 15 and 21. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Does your soul loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there's no healing for us? We looked for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Yahweh, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not He, O Yahweh our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. Then Yahweh said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says Yahweh, those who are for pestilence, to pestilence. And those who are for the sword, to the sword. Those who are for famine, to famine. And those who are for captivity, to captivity. I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declares Yahweh. The sword to kill, the dogs to tear, the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? You have rejected me, declares Yahweh. You keep going backward. So I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I am weary of relenting. I've winnowed them with, the winnowing, with a winnowing fork in the gates of the land. I've bereaved them. I've destroyed my people. They did not, return, did not turn from their ways. I've made their widows more in number than the sands of the sea. I've brought against the mothers of young men a destroyer at noonday. I've made anguish and terror fall upon them suddenly. She who bore seven has grown feeble. She has fainted away. Her son went down while it was yet day. She has been shamed and disgraced. And the rest of them I will give to the sword before their enemies, declares Yahweh. Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. Yahweh said, have I not set you free for their good? Have I not pleaded for you before the enemy in the time of trouble and in the, in the time of distress? Can one break iron, iron from the north and bronze? Your wealth and your treasures... I will give a spoil without price for all your sins throughout all your territory. I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. O Yahweh, you know. Remember me and visit me and take vengeance on me, on my persecutors. Take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and a delight and the delight of my heart. For I'm called by your name, O Yahweh God of hosts. I do not sit in the company of evildoers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was on me, for you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Therefore, thus says Yahweh, If you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. 
If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares Yahweh. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, in Christ, in His name, by His priesthood, we come to You now in prayer. Because outside of Him, we have no access to the throne of grace. We ask that You forgive us. That in this world filled with sin and evil, our lament too often gives way to complaint. Our righteous cries turn to arrogant accusations. And so strengthen our faith that You are our God. You are Lord. Your righteousness will prevail and Your gracious salvation is sure to those who repent and turn in faith toward Christ. Bless the preaching of your word now for building up your saints in their faith and showing the wicked that they have no hope outside of Christ. In His name we pray, Amen. Chapter 15 opens and we see that Judah is under judgment as one without a mediator. Remember back back in chapter 4, Judah laments before Yahweh in apparent confession and contrition, asking that Yahweh act for His namesake and have mercy and grace on her. Chapter 14, 7 through 9. And in reply, Yahweh pronounces judgment on Judah, chapter 4, verse 10, 14 and verse 10. He, he tells Jeremiah not to pray for them, chapter 14 and verse 11, saying that he will hear neither Jeremiah's cry nor their own. And this chapter closes with another lamentation of Judah. Chapter 14 closes that way. And it's full of confession and petition and even praise. And then this opening section of chapter 15 answers that lamentation. Jeremiah was commanded not to pray for Judah. But even should Moses or Samuel intercede for her. Yahweh says he would not hear That prayer. You remember after Israel sinned with the golden calf. Yahweh tells Moses, Exodus 32. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Moses pleads on their behalf asking God not to destroy them for the sake of his name. For the sake of his covenant. Yahweh replies, or we read Exodus 32, 14, Yahweh relented from the disaster that He had spoken of bringing upon His people. Likewise, after Israel had scouted Canaan and the report came back and they decided they don't want to take on the giants of the land, it'd be better for them to return to Egypt. Yahweh appears in glory at the tent of meeting and says to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And again, we see Moses interceding. 
And Yahweh replies, I have pardoned according to your word. Numbers 14, verse 16. 1 Samuel chapter 7, moving on to Samuel. The people of Israel confess their sin and they ask for Samuel to intercede for them so that they might be delivered from the Philistines. And they are. And then whenever Israel sins again, asking for a king, and they recognize this, they come to Samuel again and say, plead for us, intercede for us, and Samuel does. And grace and mercy are promised. And so can you see why the psalmist sings, Psalm 99.6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to Yahweh and he answered them. But now, Judah's sin is so great. God's long suffering so extended that he tells Jeremiah, don't pray for them. I won't hear their own prayer. And should even Moses or Samuel intercede for them, my heart would not turn toward this people. Instead, they are told to go. They are sent away. Verse 1. Send them out of my sight. It could be rendered, send them away from my face, from my presence. You remember in Exodus 8.1, Moses came with the word from Yahweh to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. And now, instead of an exodus to dwell in God's presence, they're being commanded to go away from it. Blessedness meant God's face shining down upon them, His countenance being lifted up on them. Numbers chapter 6, verses 25 through 26. This is what one can expect when they come before God without a mediator. Being told to go away from His face, His presence, all blessedness. Many today earnestly seek a kind of direct encounter with God. They want to personally hear from God. They want to get around God mediated through the Word Christ, through the Word of Christ. There can be nothing more terrifying than trying to come before God directly without a mediator. No mediator, no face. From Moses to the prophets to the priest, again and again, the way God's people always approach God was through a mediator, through mediation. The only way a sinful people can dwell in the presence of a holy God is by a mediator. Now, all these other mediators, prophets, priests, all of them were but shadows. But in rejecting them, Israel was rejecting the Son that cast those shadows. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. If Jesus doesn't plead for you, you don't have a prayer. If Christ does not pray for you, you do not have a prayer. If Christ pleads not His broken body and His blood on your behalf, you are in your sins before a holy God with no mediator. You will be sent away from His face, commanded to go from His every grace and mercy. And what does it mean to be sent away from the face of God? To be told to go. Four various destinies are allotted here. Some to pestilence, some to the sword, some to famine, some to captivity. When you turn away from the great physician, when you're told to go from his presence, there is only death. 
when you are sent away from the rock who is the refuge, there is the sword. When you are sent from the presence of the bread of life, there is only famine. And when you are sent from the freedom of serving Christ, there is only bondage. Sinner, in God's patience, you might now enjoy some health. You might enjoy some protection. You might enjoy some sustenance. You might enjoy some freedoms. But one day you will have to stand before the holy God of heaven. You as a sinner. And if you have no mediator, you will eternally have nothing that is good or true or beautiful. You'll be sent away from the face of God. And away from that face, there is only utter and eternal darkness. Further, four destroyers are appointed over the people. First, the sword kills, and then the dogs tear what has been killed. And then third and fourth, the birds of the air, the beast of the earth, devour and destroy, finishing off what is left. You remember in chapter 7, Yahweh said that the valley of Topheth, where they have worshipped Molech, offering children and sacrifice to that pagan god, will be renamed the Valley of Slaughter as the dead of Israel, of Judah, are tossed there as in an open grave to be carrion, food, for the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air. And this way they are a horror to the nations, verse 4. The curse that's being fulfilled here links this idea of being devoured by these beasts with being cursed. Deuteronomy 28 and being a whore to the nations. Deuteronomy 28, 25 through 26. Yahweh will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. And we're told, verse 4, that such a thing happens because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did. 2 Kings 21, 19 says that Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than all the nations had done whom Yahweh had destroyed before the people of Israel. And then we're told, and Yahweh said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, the king of Judah has committed these abominations and has done more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. 2 Kings 21, 10 through 12. And despite all the reformation that was brought about by King Josiah in the land, Though he was shown mercy himself, yet, we're told, 2 Kings 23, 26, still Yahweh did not turn from the burning of his great, great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And then whenever judgment does fall on the kingdom, we're told, surely this came at the command of Yahweh to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and Yahweh would not pardon. This current generation shows their complicity in these sins whenever they say in chapter 14 and verse 20, we acknowledge our wickedness, O Yahweh, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Through Jeremiah, God tells this present generation, 7 and verse 26, that they did worse than their fathers. Now the reference point there is that generation that he brought out of Egypt. You did worse than them, but what that shows is 
that they persist in the sins of Manasseh. And so, while Manasseh's final chapter for himself was one of repentance and restoration before God, his enduring legacy was a sin and idolatry. And our text then switches from poetry to prose at verse 5, from, excuse me, from prose to poetry. And this flurry of rhetorical questions opens it up. Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem, or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? Pity is the normal response to great suffering. Even should a mean person that you otherwise don't get along with suffer profoundly, you still have some kind of compassion and sorrow for them and what they're going through. But now, judgment falls upon Judah, such a severe judgment, and no pity. No one turns aside. No one asks how she is. Why? For the same reason that we don't pity some great criminal whenever fitting justice is brought upon them. What Judah has done is so horrid that as we read how how striking and how terrifying this judgment is, we don't pity her because it's fitting for her crimes. She's rejected Yahweh, verse 6. She keeps going backwards. And this answers her lament in chapter 14 and verse 19. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Does your soul loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there is no healing for us, they ask. And he tells them, I've not rejected you. You've rejected me. Whenever Israel rejects Yahweh, she is breaking covenant. And whenever Yahweh judges her, he is keeping covenant. He has told them, should they break covenant covenant, all these curses would come upon them. This is not God's covenant unfaithfulness. This is God's covenant faithfulness. These are His promises to His people. She has rejected Him so that He stretches out His hand against her. We read, I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you, verse 6. So remember, whenever God brought His people up out of Egypt, we're told again and again how His mighty arm delivered them, and now the same mighty arm that delivered them and brought them into the land is going to sweep them away from it. He's weary of relenting, verse 6. At the intercession of Moses and Samuel, God relents. He will relent no more. His patience and long-suffering have been exhausted. This judgment is certain. And so after this flurry of questions, we then have expressed what Yahweh is going to do in the past tense as though already done. Verses 8 and 9 open this up and the judgment... Well, first, verse 7, He winnows them. They're like chaff. Driven away, he bereaves them, leaves them childless. He destroys them, and still they don't turn from their ways. But then verses 8 and 9 are particularly grievous. As you read of what will happen to the mothers in Judah. He's made her widows more in number than the sands of the sea, verse 8. This is a... This is a terrifying reversal of that promise made to Abraham that he would make his offspring as the sands of the sea. And now her widows. And on the mothers of young men, that is to say on the mothers of the strength, the fighting force of the nation, upon them will come destruction. And at noon, at this unexpected time, it comes suddenly. And then the mother who appears ideally blessed, the mother who has seven sons, She grows feeble. Remember whenever Hannah took up that song in praise of Yahweh for the child that had been given to her that she dedicates to Yahweh. She sings, the barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Whenever the women of Bethlehem wish to express their their joy and just how blessed Naomi was because of the child given her through Ruth, 
and the redemption she'd experienced, they tell her, your daughter-in-law who loves you is more than seven sons. So this is a way of expressing being ideally blessed. And so the mother with seven sons, even the mother who you would expect to have her head lifted high in joy and pride, even she hangs her head in shame. She's disgraced for all those who are not mothers then in summary. Verse 9, the rest of them I will give to the sword before their enemies, declares Yahweh. And so then turning from the woes of these mothers, we turn to a woe expressed to a mother. Jeremiah says, woe is me, my mother, that, you've, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. This is not Jeremiah actually speaking to his mother, but really to his God. It's a figure of speech to communicate the distress of his soul. Job likewise expressed despondency this way, saying, Let the day perish upon which I was born, and the night, and, and the night that said a man is conceived. The preacher of Ecclesiastes, reflecting on such nightmares, says, Better is he who is not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 3. Jeremiah says he was born a man of strife and contention. These are legal terms. He's a prosecutor. He contends. The prophets were prosecuting attorneys. They were covenant attorneys showing where Israel had violated the terms of the covenant calling for her to repent and walk in Yahweh's ways and promising judgment should they not. Our book opens with Yahweh consecrating Jeremiah for this purpose. Jeremiah 1.5 He was separated apart for this purpose before he was born, we're told. He, he says, I've not lent, I've not borrowed He's not behaved in such a way to make himself obnoxious to his kinsmen. Proverbs 22.7 says, The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Jeremiah is not a tyrannical lender, nor is he a bum borrower. He hasn't made himself obnoxious to his, his kinsmen in this way, and yet he's cursed. Why is he cursed by them all? You've already been told the answer, verse 6. Whenever they reject Yahweh, they reject His prophet. They can't get their hands on Yahweh. They can't spit in God's face. But there is His mouthpiece, His prophet, that they can deal with. And no one likes a prosecuting attorney coming against them with such a heavy lawsuit. In reply to Jeremiah's lament, Yahweh puts forward a series of rhetorical questions to Jeremiah just as he had done to Israel. Verses 11 and 12. Have I not set you free for their good? Have I not pleaded for you before the enemy in the time of trouble, in the time of distress? Can, anyone, can one break iron, iron from the north and bronze? I think that these are indeed meant to be understood as questions, but still the sense is better understood by the New American Standard, which reads, Surely I will set you free for purposes of good. Surely I will cause the enemy to make supplication to you in a time of disaster, in a time of distress. These are really difficult words to translate, but I do believe the idea is not that Yahweh is pleading for Jeremiah, but he's telling Yahweh his enemies will plead to him, that that's the sense I think is made clear by verse 19 where he says, If you return, I will restore you. You shall stand before me. Excuse me. The end of verse 19. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. They'll turn to, to Jeremiah asking him in some ways for relief, for counsel. But he will not turn to them. And then finally, this iron from the north that he speaks of. Can one break iron? Iron from the north is the destruction that's been referred to out of the north so often, Babylon, coming against them. But also the figure of speech involved might allude to the iron around the Black Sea area, which was, was 
had a quality that was almost steel-like. It was, it was superior. And so it's this idea of a superior force coming from the north, one that cannot be stopped. And so by these questions then, what God is doing is calling for His prophet to realize the wicked will be judged. In cursing you, they've cursed me. They will not prevail against you for this reason. But then it seems as though Jeremiah is harshly judged for his lamentation, contrary to the sense of these questions. Verse 13, Your wealth and your treasures I will give as spoil without price for all your sins throughout all your territory. I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. But that these verses concern Judah and not Jeremiah is made clear in chapter 17 when we see the same words spoken clearly regarding Judah. Chapter 17, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their Asherim beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country. And now the same curse. Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price for your, of, of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know for in... My anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. So do you see, then, these are not, these final verses of Yahweh's reply to Jeremiah are not speaking concerning the prophet, but concerning the people as an answer to the question, can one break iron? Iron from the north and bronze, can one stand against the wrath of Yahweh Almighty when He intends it to fall? So again, Yahweh is rebuking His prophet and yet extending grace and mercy to him in this rebuke as well. Even so, Yahweh continues to, uh, Jeremiah continues to lament to Yahweh. And his, his lament starts off well enough. It echoes a lot of what we see in the Psalms. He begins with confession. Verse 15, Yahweh, you know. What does he know? It's the same thing I think he confessed in chapter 12 and verse 3. You, O Yahweh, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. The same sentiment is often throughout the Psalms where the psalmist calls upon God to see or behold or, or he affirms that God knows His covenant faithfulness, His, His pursuit of righteousness and truth. What Jeremiah confesses that God knows then is Jeremiah's faithfulness. The faithfulness he will unfold in verses 16 and 17. Your words were found and I ate them. I did not sit in the company of evildoers. I sat alone. So these pleas are not fundamentally about Jeremiah asking for vengeance because of some kind of personal vendetta. What these are about are Jeremiah calling God's attention to his covenant promises. The righteous will be like trees planted by the water. The wicked are like chaff the wind drives away. Yahweh, look on this situation and behold. And Jeremiah goes on to plead that God knows what He has confessed He knows. Verse 15. O Yahweh, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance upon me. On my per for me, on my persecutors, in your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. I bear reproach for your sake. Know that I bear reproach for your sake. Know your words were found and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy, the delight of my heart. There very likely could be an allusion here to the discovery of Deuteronomy the law in the temple. And so what Jeremiah is saying, your law, your covenant, I found it and I devoured it and it was sweet to me. 
He delights in God's covenant. He is that man that Psalm 1 speaks of that delights in the law of Yahweh. And that this isn't some kind of just mental exercise. He delights to, to look at it, study it, know it. It's clear by the way the psalmist speaks in Psalm 119. I do not turn aside from your rules for you have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Jeremiah delighting in Yahweh's grace though is because, delighting in Yahweh's word is because of Yahweh's grace. Why does he delight in the word of God so? Because he's been called by Yahweh's name. It's because of those opening lines that we saw in chapter 1 that Yahweh purposed and intended this for Jeremiah. It's not something that was in Jeremiah that's the reason why he enjoys the taste of God's word, whereas his countrymen don't. It's because of an act of God's grace that Jeremiah finds the word so pleasant. Third, Jeremiah says, you know this. I've eschewed the company of the wicked, verse 17. And again, you hear an echo of the first psalm here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Or Psalm 26, 4 and 5, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. And so Jeremiah, having devoured the word, his affections are changed to God's affections. He, he doesn't dwell with them. He doesn't sit with them. And this is why. Because Yahweh had filled him with indignation, a righteous hatred of this wickedness. So far... So good. The Psalms teach us to pray in this way again and again. And then, verse 18. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? And there are some roots to this. If the righteous are like trees... The wicked are like chaff. Why, God? And that there is a tinge of accusation at minimum in this lamentation now turned to complaint is very clear by the next words. Will you be to me like a deceitful brook like waters that fail? You remember that this chapter, it's, it's just tied up with chapter 14. Chapter 14 opens concerning the drought that Yahweh has brought upon His people. And this takes us back to chapter 2, which sets up the big theme of Israel's sin in this way. My people have committed two evils. They've rejected me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so having done this, they're made to drink of their sin, which means there's nothing to drink. The heavens have become as bronze. And now Jeremiah asks if all his faithfulness to the covenant means nothing. Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, what we might call a dry creek bed, a wadi. It would be this, this riverbed that's dry until the wet seasons. And so Jeremiah in this, in this drought looks for anticipated water. It looks like water's promised. And as he arrives, he finds it empty, dry. Psalm 62 calls for us to pour out our hearts before God who is our refuge. We must be honest with God. But we must also be sure that our honesty is a humble honesty. And not one full of hubris and pride. Certainly we must, also, we must be honest with God, but we must also be humble for He is holy. Yes, 
Remember, pour out your hearts before God, Psalm 62.8, but also recall Ecclesiastes 5.2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Some think it pious to tell us, be honest with God, let Him know how you feel. He's a big guy, He can take it, they say. He can take it. Can you? Bring your sins to God in prayer. Do not rub them in His face. For you are of earth and He is in heaven. Be honest, but make sure it is a humble honesty. Bring your sins not in arrogance before God, but in contrition and brokenness and confession. With this, the prophet then, who has so often declared return, has now told himself to return. If you return, I will restore you. And you shall stand before me. Do you see the opposite? Of what was pronounced on Judah. They were told to go from the presence of Yahweh. And now Jeremiah is told, should you return, I will restore you and you will stand before me. My face will shine on you. My countenance be lifted up on you. Grace, mercy and peace. Should you return. If he will utter what is precious and not what is worthless, he shall be as Yahweh's mouth. If Jeremiah is to speak to others the word of Yahweh, he must hear the word of Yahweh himself. The maxim remains true for every preacher, and the application is not far from any one of us. As John Stott says, if God has not spoken, how dare we speak? Let us add this, if we have not heard... How dare we speak? Once again, though, Jeremiah is rebuked. It's a rebuke full of grace and promises, though. If you return, I'll restore you. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, like you've just done, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. Echoing the promise that he made to Jeremiah in chapter 1 in his calling, he says, I will make you like a fortified wall of bronze. They may rail against you, but they will not prevail, for I am with you to save you, deliver you, redeem you, restore you. A fortified wall. Vince Havner said, A preacher should have the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the heart that hide of a rhinoceros. His biggest problem is how to toughen his hide without hardening his heart. How do we solve this conundrum? I think it's for you right, in the, right here in this text. Jeremiah's strength doesn't stem from some kind of callousness towards sinners, but a tenderness towards his God. When God's word is sweet to you, it matters not if the world is sour on you. So then, with chapter 14 and chapter 15, seeing the whole picture, you see you have two laments. The lament of Judah, the lament of Jeremiah. And the first lament is met with a stern word that there will be no hope of redemption. And the second lamentation extends the promise of restoration. And the irony is, if you just look at the laments, Judah's, which sounds good, is completely rejected. And Jeremiah's, which sounds bad at points, 
has grace and mercy extended within it. What makes the difference? From one perspective, we could say that whereas Judah's prayers sounded good, her heart was far from Yahweh. And though Jeremiah's prayers sounded bad, his heart was near. Or we could show how Judah has hardened her heart toward the word of Yahweh again and again and again. Whereas Jeremiah, though he sins, though he stumbles, though he falls, yet there remains and abides a tenderness towards the word of God. In light of that, I would urge you, as so often the psalmist does, again as the author of Hebrews does, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Because this hardening might be the one upon which you sear your conscience towards the Spirit's work of conviction and illuminating the Word of God. Or we could tease out how this book makes plain plain, that whereas judgment was determined for Judah. For the sins of Manasseh, it is determined Yahweh will work His plan. Just as judgment is determined for Manasseh, He's revealed that grace is determined for His prophet that He separated and consecrated before He was born. But along with this, we could say that whereas Judah did not have a prayer, Jeremiah did. What made all the difference was not simply that the Father chose Jeremiah, but that He chose him in Christ, Ephesians 1. He was chosen in the Beloved. No mediator was provided for this generation, and ultimately the reason why grace could be extended to the prophet was because... Not that he was some great mediator, but that he had one. He had one. That whenever the Father's grace and mercy truly proved to be a wadi, no water, and in his thirst, he tasted only bitter gall. As the father's face turns from his son in the sense of all the love and joy and fellowship he's known eternally, but turns towards the son in wrath and anger. Yet, he trusted, saying, not my will, but yours be done. Because he has such a mediator crying out, pleading, His broken body and His poured out blood for the new covenant. For that reason, Jeremiah has a prayer, a hope. Know this, it matters not how you pray so much as who prays for you. Sinners, we have no other prayer than this. That Jesus Christ be our high priest and our sacrifice, pleading the blood of the new covenant. If Christ pleads not, His broken body and His spilled blood on your behalf, you have not a prayer. Sinner, do not despair. But hear this word, Romans 10.13. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is no salvation in any other name than the name of Jesus. 
But in Jesus, there is salvation. Full, free, ample, adequate, overflowing, grace upon grace. Concerning this mediator, know this, Acts 5.31, God exalted him to his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. not what you give but it's whether or not you have the mediator who was given to give repentance and forgiveness let's pray Holy Father, praise, glory, honor be to you in giving your Son to live to be our righteousness, to die suffering for our sins. Father, In the strong name of Jesus, we plead that if there's one here, that their their hope is in anything other than Christ, that they would see their desperate situation before a holy God. And they would see the wonder and awe of Christ crucified And they would abandon themselves, throw themselves in faith, and cling to nothing but Christ, pleading Him. And they would know your salvation and grace, that you would grant them repentance and forgiveness of sins, Father. For your saints, bolster our faith. May we treasure. Just what a privilege it is that not in and of ourselves, but in Christ our mediator, we not only have a prayer, we have salvation and grace full and free. In Christ's name, amen.